are dying today because they do nothing which the world should look at and say, there is evidence that God is real and that he is glorious. Many churches have forgotten why they exist. And when a church forgets why it exists, that it exists for God and for others, it becomes ingrown and self-satisfied and may go on year after year, but its life is ebbing away. So writes author John Piper. Church, this morning we began a sermon series entitled Biblical Community. It's a series that I would like for us to consider and examine together what it looks like to be the church. Because after all, the church is not a building. It's not this beautiful building that we have. The church is not a place. No, the church is a people. It is a redeemed people. It's a, it's a community of individuals and people. And so then biblically, what does it look like for us as individuals who make up Second Baptist Church, in fact, to be the church? What should our life together in this local body look like? And you might be asking, well, why this series? Why a series on biblical community? And why a series so important that you saw the need to flip-flop our study as we've been through in the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings, now to, to take place on Sunday evenings, and this to take place on Sunday mornings where we have the largest gathering of our church body together? Why a series on church life? And let me just give you two reasons. Reason number one is because, I think you'll agree with me, that it is easy for us to forget who we are, isn't it? It's easy for us to forget why we exist. In fact, all too often, many churches, they wander aimlessly, and sadly, they begin to sort of just look like everything under the sun except perhaps the New Testament church, and as a result of that, many churches, even in our community, are dying And therefore, it's important for us from time to time to to step back and to remind ourselves of who we are and what we're about and why we exist. Most recently, our church voted to adopt this as our church's mission statement, that Second Baptist Church exists to delight in God, to display His grace, and to declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. That our purpose as a church is to delight in God corporately as we gather, to display His grace relationally in our relationships with one another, and to declare His gospel broadly as a church all through Jesus Christ. So then what does all of that mean? And therefore, we need to regularly remind ourselves of who we are, what we're about, why we exist. As a church. That's reason number one. Reason number two is because over the last year, one of the things that the Lord has laid on my heart personally and the heart of our elders collectively is the growing need in our church for biblical community. The importance of our life together, our relationships with one another in this local body. And So, one area in which we believe that God wants us to grow as a church is in the area of biblical community, in the area of fellowship with one another in the church, in in caring for one another. Now listen, we believe that there are so many areas of our church life where we believe that we are healthy. And it is good, and it is, it is right. We, we are committed to the expositional preaching of God's word. We are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are committed to sound doctrine and biblical church governance and biblical worship and discipleship and evangelism and missions. And all of those things are good things. And we celebrate those things where we see them in the life of our church together. However, one area... One area we believe in which we need to grow and we need to mature as a church is in the area of biblical community. In practicing 
the one another's of the Bible together. In fact, did you realize how many one another commands there are in Scripture? I counted 30 of them. For example, be at peace with each other. Love one another. Be joined to one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Rejoice with one another. Weep with one another. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another. Counsel one another. Greet one another. Agree with each other. Wait for one another. Care. Serve one another. Carry one another's burdens. Be kind to one another. Forgive, submit to, bear with, teach, and admonish one another. Encourage one another. Build up one another. Spur on one another. Offer hospitality to one another. Minister gifts to one another. Be humble toward one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another and fellowship with one another. And that's just what I found. So how are we doing? Now, that's not in any way to suggest that those things aren't happening at all in the life of this church and perhaps even happening in ways that we don't even see and we don't even realize. But it is our responsibility as your elders and you as the church to not only know what these commands are, but to regularly and actively be putting them into practice. It's one thing to say that you believe them. It's another thing to do them. It's one thing to be hearers of them. It's another thing to be doers of them. And thus, one very practical, tangible way we believe as your elders that God is leading our church more effectively to live out these one another commands, to show and express biblical community, is by implementing a small group's ministry. It is our hope and desire that every single member of Second Baptist Church would be actively involved in a small group. You would gather weekly in homes for the purpose of fellowship around the Word, caring for one another's needs, both physical and spiritual, and living life together. Life on life discipleship. And our plan is to launch this ministry, Lord willing, in the fall of this year. And over the course of this series, I hope to show you what that means. I hope to show you what this looks like and what we envision these groups to be and how it's going to impact the weekly life of our church together. And I'm also sure that that means that many of you are going to have lots of questions and perhaps lots of concerns. And that's okay. But what is not okay is to simply dig your heels in and say, we will not change. I want you to be open. I want you to search the scriptures with me. I want you to submit to the leadership of your elders. I want you to consider what perhaps the Lord might be doing in the life of our church together. I want you to say, Lord, this is your church. Do with it as you please. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to, I want to get the big picture. I want to step back and, and ask some pretty broad questions. Questions like, what is a church supposed to be? I mean, biblically speaking, what should characterize a church? What, what should we give our time and our attention to as a church? Is, is there a blueprint for the church? Or does the New Testament just sort of open it up for us to do whatever we want to do as a church? And this is where I think Acts chapter 2 is going to help us this morning. Because in Acts chapter 2, we see that God has given us a blueprint for his church. And so I want to look together at this text this morning, and I want to ask three questions. So let, let me give you those three questions that we're going to look at this morning, and then I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to answer those questions together. So here they are, if you want to write them down. Here are the questions this morning we want to answer. Question number one. How did this new community come into being? How did this new community come into being? Question number two, what should characterize this new community? And then question number three, what is God's ultimate purpose for this community? And we're going to spend most of our time on questions one and two, and then we're going to come back at the end very briefly by way of conclusion and answer question number three. 
So let me read the text, and then we'll answer these questions. So I'd invite you, if you're able, to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word together. And if you didn't get those questions, I'll give them to you in a minute again. I'm going to begin reading at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Church, this is the word of God. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You can be seated this morning. Well, when one studies the book of Acts, it's always important to ask yourself the question, is what is happening here prescriptive or descriptive? Meaning, is this a one-time event, or is this something that should characterize the church of all ages? Because there are events, as we're going to see in Acts, that are simply historical descriptions. They're one-time events that are never to be repeated. I mean, after all, think about it. This is a, this is a unique period of time. In Acts, we see the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. In Acts, we see this movement from old covenant anticipation to new covenant realization. And we see even an example of that here in Acts chapter 2 with Pentecost. Many one-time events. However, Acts also contains for us instructions for every local church throughout the ages. From the first century to the 21st century. So then, what about our passage this morning? Verses 42 to 47. Is this prescriptive or is this descriptive? Is this what is to characterize the church of all ages? Even Second Baptist Church? Well, it's important to note that verses 42 to 47, they function as a summary passage in the book of Acts. What Luke is doing here is he's providing for us, as he does in several places, a summary section in his narrative of the early church. And, and there are, in fact, other summary sections throughout the gospel, or excuse me, the book of Luke. For example, I want you to notice with me in, in chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, we see another one of these summary sections. Look again in chapter 5, verse 12 through 16. Again, a summary of the early church and the growth experienced. We see it in chapter 6 and verse 7. Again, chapter 9, verse 13. And then finally in chapter 12, in verse 24. All summary sections Luke is providing for us in his narrative. But what's their purpose? Why are they here? Is, is Luke just simply giving us history? Is this just literary filler? Or do these summary sections serve a very intentional purpose. And I'm, I'm going to go with that one. That that's why he's included this section here. New Testament scholar David Peterson, he says that these summary passages have several important functions. First, he says, they describe how the church grew through the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Spirit. That's what's going on here. He also says that they highlight how God himself is building a new community and not simply dealing with isolated individuals. Meaning the reason that they come together in these sections in the book of Acts is to show that God isn't just dealing with individuals. No, he's dealing with this new people that he's forming. And then finally he says the reason for these summary sections is because they present an apologetic for the church. Luke, he says, is commending here a positive example 
of the earliest Christian community for his readers. And thus, these summary sections, they are, yes, a description of the early church, but they are also, beloved, prescriptions for all churches universally. Peterson writes of our passage, again, he says, the narrative in chapter 2 now shifts from description of particular events on a particular day, Pentecost, to a general description of the inner life of the church. And so these verses, I want you to see this morning, they are a summary section for us, a blueprint for the church, for our own particular church. And so then, what should this Christian community, known as Second Baptist Church, what should it look like? Let's begin by asking question number one. Question number one, how did this new community come into being? How did this new community come into being? Or another way to ask it might be, what is this new community? What creates and defines this community, the church? Because there's no denying, as we're going to see here, this new community is made up of a particular group of people. For example, notice in verse 41, it's those who heard the word. Now, who are those? Or in verse 41, they were added that day. Added to what? Or, verse 42, they devoted themselves. Who's they? Or again, verse 47, the Lord added to their number. The number of what? So, we see that this new community, it's it's made up here of a particular group of people who are defined by certain things. So, how did this new community now come into being? How did it come into existence? Well, it's important to note that verses 42 to 47 come right on the heels of verses 1 to 41. And you say, well, no, duh, Captain Obvious, right? But that's important. It's significant because verses 1 to 41 of chapter 2, they they describe the coming of the Holy Spirit in power. So it's important that our verses this morning, we we don't isolate these verses from the rest of chapter 2. That our passage this morning, it comes right on the heels of one of the most important events in human history. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. I mean, this is one of those descriptive, one-time events that Luke recounts for us. This is an event never to be repeated again. It's an event on par with Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It's, it's an event that is monumental. It is a turning point. It is a, a history-shaping, kingdom-inaugurating, end-time-beginning kind of event. The Spirit comes at Pentecost and Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled. Joel chapter 2 is happening here. And notice, notice in verse 2, there's the sound of rushing wind. Verse 3, tongues of fire. Verse 4, uneducated men are speaking in languages unknown to them. I mean, this is something radically new. This is something altogether different that is happening at this particular moment in history. And all of these signs and all of these wonders, they are meant to, listen, they are meant to testify to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. They are meant to testify to the truth and the validity of the gospel. And then, in verse 41, 3,000 people are saved on one day. It's incredible. But then, in verse 42... It's almost as if it all comes to a screeching halt. Because in verse 42, you have described here, you get a picture of normal, ordinary church. Why does Luke put these two events back to back like this? Well, the reason is because Luke is showing us what creates and defines the church. What creates the church? In a nice building, fancy logo, 
slick programs? A group of people who just have stuff in common and they just start getting together? What defines the church? What creates the church? Well, notice in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 40, we have recorded the first ever Christian sermon. Peter stands up at Pentecost and he preaches the gospel. He preaches Jesus. He preaches Old Testament prophecy about Jesus. He preaches the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension and exaltation of Jesus. He preaches repentance toward and faith in Jesus. He preaches Jesus. He preaches the gospel. And what happens? Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So notice what happens here. In verse 41 Peter preaches the gospel, and those who heard received the word. Meaning they repented, and they believed in the gospel. And then notice what happened. They were baptized. This is a public declaration of their faith and identification with Jesus and with the church. It was a public declaration to say, Jesus died for my sins, and he rose again from the dead to give me new life. They were baptized into the church. And then, in verse 41, notice, they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Added to the membership of the church. Think about this. The church in Jerusalem on that day shot, the membership shot from 120 people to 3,120 people in one single day. Oh my. And so then, What is it that created the church? How how did this new community come into being? Listen, it wasn't a clever marketing strategy. It was the Spirit of God and the gospel, and that's it. And it created the church. It is the Spirit of God working through the proclamation of the gospel message that creates the church. You cannot separate the Christian community from this message. It is this message that creates the church. And how does it do that? Here's how. The Spirit of God gives life to the human soul through the hearing and the understanding of the gospel message. And thus, when the Spirit of God gives life to the soul, they then become part of this new community that God Himself is creating by the Spirit through the proclamation of the Gospel. And they are drawn into these now new communities. And that's what creates the church. It's the Gospel. And so the question is then, okay, then what should define the church? Easy. It is the gospel. If it is the gospel that creates the church, then it is the gospel that should define the church. The Christian community must be defined by people who have responded to the gospel message. They have been born again by the Spirit. They have repented of their sins. They put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And as a result, they have been baptized into and they join the membership of the local church. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal to be clear on what creates and defines the church? Here's why. Because if we're not careful... It creates the danger, listen, of an unregenerate church membership. The danger of an unregenerate church membership. If we're not careful, the church becomes, listen, populated with unregenerate people. Now listen, unbelievers are always welcome in our local gatherings. If, if, you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're an unbeliever, you are welcome here. But we must be careful that it is not unbelievers that make up the local church. They are always welcome, but they do not make up the local church. And the sad reality, 
The sad reality is that there are many churches with a large number of unbelievers, unregenerate people on their church roles. And friends, listen, that is so dangerous. It is so dangerous because what it does is it convinces and assures many people that they are Christians when in fact they are not. And so if the church isn't, isn't careful to define what the church is, and if, the, if there isn't any soul care that is going on in the life of our church, and if we haven't done our due diligence to make sure that every person who is a member of Second Baptist Church, as far as we can tell, is a born-again, regenerate believer, listen, it destroys and it distorts the church. Which is also why Membership in the local church is so important. Because church membership defines who makes up the church. It's critical to the health of the local church. So so hear me in love this morning. Please hear this in love. If you are attending this church and you are not a covenant member of this church, you need to join the covenant membership of this church or another gospel preaching church because it is so vital not only to your own spiritual growth but to the health of this local church. Church membership is so critical. It is so biblical. It is so important because what should define this community, what creates this community is the gospel. We welcome unbelievers, but we are not a church defined by unbelievers. And if you are an unbeliever here this morning, listen, you can walk out of the room this morning being a believer, being part of this community by by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and repenting of your sin. You can be part of the church. It is the Spirit of God working through the preaching of the gospel that creates new life in the soul and makes us part of the church, church both universally, the, the body of Christ, and locally. So if this is how the new community comes into being, by the Spirit, through the gospel, what then is the evidence that the Spirit is at work among us? What, what should characterize the new Spirit-filled community? Well, that's the second question I want you to see What should characterize this new community? What should characterize this new community? And and notice here that Luke gives us four things. He gives us four things that describe and characterize this new community. And what he's doing here is he's, he's setting out a pattern. A pattern for every Christian community. In fact, notice in verse 42, he says, they devoted themselves. The New American Standard says they were continually devoting themselves, meaning that that these were things that they remained constant in. These were things that were a a habit for the church. These were things that they gave persistent and regular attention to. These were the essential activities of their community life together. So Second Baptist Church, this is Church Life 101. What characterizes the church? Well, notice four things. First notice, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Meaning that they were a church committed to the authority of the scriptures. Now remember, at this point in the book of Acts, they they didn't have the New Testament. so, So Peter couldn't... He couldn't get up and say, please, everybody turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6 because that's what's happening right here, right? However, what they did have, what they did have were the apostles themselves. They had their teaching, these men who had been set apart, had been commissioned by Christ with the authority of Christ himself. And so as time went on then, what, what began to happen is that these apostles, they, they began to write down what Jesus had said and what he had taught them in letters In fact, in John chapter 14, Jesus tells these apostles what will happen when the Spirit comes. And we read in John chapter 14, verse 26, where Jesus says, But the Helper, 
the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In other words, that the Holy Spirit would inspire them and remind them to write down God's word. This was the apostles' teaching. And notice there in verse 42, it is the apostles' teaching that had the primary and central importance in the life of this community. It's number one on the list. Which means that for our church to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, it means we devote ourselves to the word of God. We devote ourselves to the word. John Stott in his commentary says, our contemporary devotion to the apostles' teaching means submission to the authority of the New Testament. We submit ourselves to the word of God, to the apostles' teaching. And the very first thing, notice that the Spirit produces in this new community is a hunger and devotion to the word. Submission to the authority of the word. The Spirit-filled community is the word-filled community. Meaning that we, we gather regularly around the word. That I, I am not the attraction here on Sunday morning or anyone who stands behind this pulpit. No, the, the attraction here is the Word of God and we submit ourselves to the authority of the Word. We hunger for the Word. We, we're a learning community that is taught the Word because we're devoted to the Word. But listen, our devotion to the Word Our devotion to the Word, it includes our Sunday morning gatherings, but it's not limited to our Sunday morning gatherings. It includes it, but it's not limited to it. Here's what I mean. It is that, but it's more. Because I think the emphasis you see here in this passage, as we'll see in just a moment, is on daily life together. In fact, notice in verse 46. And day by day... Attending the temple together. This is where groups would gather. They would gather around the word. However, I I don't think it just means listening to sermons, folks. It means daily reading and discussing and applying the word of God together with one another. Colossians chapter 3, teaching and admonishing one another. Hebrews chapter 3, exhorting one another every day. And this is one reason we believe that word-centered small groups can be very effective and fruitful. Gathering weekly, in homes, around the word, to discuss and apply and teach and exhort and challenge one another to live out the word of God together. To be devoted to the Word. And so the Spirit-filled community is characterized by devotion to the Word. But notice also, second, it's also characterized by their devotion to biblical fellowship. Look there again in verse 42. And the fellowship, Luke tells us. Now we need to be careful here because we might all, I think, have different understandings of what this word fellowship means. Because there there are many churches and there are many Christians who use the word fellowship, but it's not the way the Bible describes fellowship. So, So what is biblical fellowship? Well, let me just first say what I think biblical fellowship is not. Okay, That, that might be helpful. Biblical fellowship is not warm human friendships. Biblical fellowship is not connecting with others because of common interests or experiences or viewpoints. That's not biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship is not hanging out with friends and going hunting and fishing. It's not talking Cardinals baseball or how the Blues are going to do this week. That's not biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship is not a potluck meal that we're about to have. You can, you, listen, you can even attend a Bible study and not actually participate in biblical fellowship. So what is biblical fellowship? 
Well, in verse 42, notice the word there, fellowship, which you probably know is the Greek word koinonia. And what that word means is it means to share with someone in something. It, it, it means to participate in. It means to have in common or this idea of, of partnership. Surprisingly, although it's seen throughout the book of Acts, it's only mentioned here once in this particular passage in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul, though, however, he loved this word. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, he tells us, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any participation in the Spirit, that's koinonia, participation in the Spirit. In Philemon chapter 1, verse 6, he says, And I pray that the sharing of your faith, that's fellowship, may promote the knowledge of all. So, then to take a stab at what biblical fellowship is, here's how I would define it. Biblical fellowship is sharing life together made possible by the Spirit through our union with Christ. Biblical fellowship is sharing life together made possible by the Spirit through our union with Christ. So biblical fellowship, think about it. It, It means first that we have right fellowship relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We have been reconciled to Him, which happens by the Spirit through Christ, our union with Him. And then the church, by that same fellowship we have with God now, is brought then into union with one another. That the common denominator among us is the fellowship we have with the Father by the Spirit through the Son. And thus, one's relationship with God should be the main, listen, the main topic in our fellowship together. And might I add, in our small groups. Some men much smarter than me define biblical fellowship this way. J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer says, Fellowship is a sharing with one, another, with one another the things that God has made known to us about himself in hope that we may thus help them to know him better and so enrich their fellowship with him. And fellowship is finding strength, refreshment, and instruction for one's own soul. So there's an element of fellowship that relates to me wanting you to have better fellowship with God and me wanting to have better fellowship with God by your fellowship with me. John MacArthur, he defines it this way. He says, fellowship is the spiritual duty of believers to stimulate each other to holiness and faithfulness. It is most specifically expressed through the one another's of the New Testament. So it's, it's practicing the one another's together. And notice, it's the duty. It's the duty of every Christian to stimulate one another. In fact, we see here, notice, a tangible expression of this fellowship, this oneness they had. Notice in verse 46. In verse 46 we read, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. So here's a picture of biblical fellowship. They shared life together. They shared their money They shared their possessions. They shared meals. They shared time. They shared energy together. Now, it's important to note that no serious New Testament scholar here thinks that what's happening here in Acts chapter 2 is some sort of biblically prescribed communism or socialism where you you sell everything that you own to the church then to be redistributed to everybody else. No, that's, that's not what Luke is saying. He's not saying go sell all of your possessions to the church and then we'll just redistribute them. No, remember, they had no banks. They had no ATMs in that day. Their, their money, it was tied up in their, in their possessions and in their property. But, but what is important to note here. Notice, is that the Christian community, they saw one another's needs as their common concern. Meaning, if you're hurting, it's my problem too. 
And so an act of their fellowship together was that they were, notice verse 44, giving and selling and distributing and caring for one another. So much so that in chapter 4, verse 34, we read that not a needy person was among them. We see a picture here of biblical fellowship. However, while this is an expression of biblical fellowship, we, we, we must be careful not to limit fellowship to simply meeting one another's physical needs. Because in reality, what fellowship is, is it's doing life together. Notice there in verse 44, all who believed were together and they had all things in common. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes together. Church, listen, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life It causes them to participate in the common life of the church built around the gospel. Yes, when Jesus saves you, he saves you as an individual, but he does not, listen, he does not save you in isolation. He saves you to become part of something, to make you together with other people. It is impossible for you to live a Christian life apart from being part of the local church. Now listen, I'm not suggesting that you can't be a Christian and not be part of a church, but I'm suggesting that it is impossible for you to live as a faithful Christian apart from life together in the local church. For example, if you were to come to me and you were to say, Joshua, what do you do for a living? And I were to say to you, well, I play baseball. That's what I do. I play baseball. Oh, okay. What position do you play? Well, I'm a pitcher. I'm a catcher. I I sort of just play the field. I play them all. Wow, you're talented. What, What team do you play for? Well, I'm not really into teams. I don't really play on a team. I don't like teams. Friend, you got a problem because baseball is a team sport. You can't play baseball if you don't play on a team. And and I would suggest by the same token that you must be a practical participant in the life of a local church in order for you to be everything that God has called you to be as a Christian. Being a Christian means being together regularly and continually with other Christians. And we need to be reminded of this church We need to be reminded of it because if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we can reduce fellowship to one hour a week on Sunday mornings, a meal we're about to have once a month, when in reality, biblical fellowship is about doing life together. And we see that in the next one. Notice in verse 42, we also see that the third thing they devoted themselves to was the breaking of bread. Notice verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Now, some scholars argue that the breaking of bread here is another name for the Lord's Supper. It's another name for communion. Well, on the other hand, there are other scholars who would say, well, actually, and I think this is rightly so, that this is simply a reference to ordinary meals. New Testament scholar David Peterson writes, The breaking of bread most obviously refers to the common meals shared in the earliest disciples in their homes. Some scholars have argued that this expression is a technical term for the Lord's Supper and already separate from their ordinary meals. However, the term describes an ordinary meal in the Jewish fashion. To break bread was simply to eat together. Another scholar offers a slightly different perspective. He says, while many scholars see the phrase as a celebration of the Lord's Supper, and others argue that this is a reference only to ordinary meals, there is the distinct possibility that it refers to both. At the church in Corinth, which we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Lord's Supper was commemorated in connection with ordinary, regular meals that the believers shared. 
In other words, they're saying that the breaking of bread simply means ordinary meals in homes. And, and, and perhaps these were in conjunction with the Lord's Supper, which if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it, it seems to only make sense that way. In fact, notice there in verse 46, I think you see a description of what this breaking of bread was. Look what he says there. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food. These were meals shared together in homes. Intimate, close, daily fellowship with one another. So I'm simply arguing here that Christian fellowship was expressed in the earliest times in the ordinary activity of eating together in one another's homes. That's what we see happening here. These people got together over meals. This is one way of sharing life together. This is one way of living in fellowship together. Sharing meals was fundamental to the life of the early church. And sadly, I think in our Western 21st century church, we have, we've gotten away from this practice. But this isn't simply about eating in somebody else's home. No, this is about daily meals with one another, in fellowship, this is what the Spirit does. It draws us together in close fellowship with one another. And so the Spirit-filled community is characterized by, notice, devotion to the Word, fellowship, breaking of bread, and then finally, finally notice, number four, the prayers. Look what he says. The breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, we don't know if the prayers here were set prayers that they prayed, like the Lord's Prayer or the Psalms, or, or maybe they were perhaps informal prayers. We don't know for sure because it says the prayers. However, what we do know is that this group of people were dependent upon God in prayer. In fact, as you, as you read through Acts, one unmistakable mark of the Spirit-filled community was that they prayed And they prayed together. They spoke their gratitude to God together. They they petitioned God together. They, they, They prayed together. They prayed regularly and daily together with one another. Brothers and sisters, do you see here, do you see the picture of what this new spirit filled community is supposed to look like? What it is that should characterize the church, that Christians do life together, that they know enough about one another's needs that they are able to help each other together and they they meet together and they study the Bible together and they eat together and they fellowship together and they pray together. And why does Luke put these two pictures, these two events back to back here, immediately following Pentecost? Here's why. Because this is normal church. This is what the spirit-filled community is to look like. But there's one more thing we need to see before we look at this final question. Notice in verse 47... Notice that this church community is being watched and observed by a broader community. Look there at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, who's that? This is the watching world. This is the unbelievers that that are observing the life of this church together. And in verse 47, they had favor with all the people. Think about that. Favor with all the people. Now, I'm willing to bet that their favor with unbelievers, it wasn't because of their strange doctrine about a God-man who died and rose again. That's not what earned them favor. No, rather... As Daryl Bach writes, their, their life as a community was a visible part of their testimony. Let me say that again. Their life as a community was a visible part 
of their testimony. What gave them favor with the watching world was the Spirit's transformation in this redeemed people, a transformation into joy and fellowship and generosity and the uniqueness of their community life together as they cared for one another. And let me tell you what, that is what impressed the people of Jerusalem. And that is what created for them a platform, an open door, door a touch point for hearing the gospel message church we have to see this we have to grasp this our life together as a community is a visible part of our testimony to the watching world so what does second baptist church preach to the world by the way that it lives life together Because gospel proclamation and gospel communities, they they have to go hand in hand. you you got to have both. You have to have both in order to be what God has called us to be. And as a result of this, this transformed community, look there in verse 47, that because of their visible testimony to the world, of their life together, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Do you want to see that happen? It will only happen, I think, to the degree in which we are living together in this sort of biblical community. And so then, what will this mean for a small group ministry at Second Baptist Church? Let me just give you four statements, four things it's going to mean. And we'll see this throughout the series as we move through this. We'll add to this list in weeks to come. Number one, our small group ministry will be an extension of our church's mission. Our small group ministry will be an extension of our church's mission. Meaning that our small groups will seek to fulfill our church's mission statement. To delight in God, to display His grace, and declare His Gospel. So that means asking the questions, how can our small groups better accomplish those three objectives? How will they help us to better delight in God together? How will they help us seek to display His grace in the way that we care for each other? How can we leverage them evangelistically to proclaim His gospel? So it'll be an extension of our church's mission statement. Second, Our small group ministry will be an extension of our Sunday morning gatherings. Here's what I mean. That this small group ministry and meeting together as a small group, they aren't meant, listen, to replace our Sunday morning gatherings, but only to strengthen and enhance them. Because here's why. Even in a small church, even in a small church, it is easy to disappear into the crowd on Sunday morning. It is easy to come in this room on Sunday morning and be passive. It is easy to neglect personal application of the truths we are hearing from the Word of God. It's easy to escape accountability. And I think a small group ministry will help us in that. Equipping us to live the Christian life better. Third, a small group ministry will gather Weekly in homes, to devote themselves to these four things that we see here. To biblical fellowship, centered around the word of God, mutual care for one another's needs, and praying together. That's going to be the main aim, the main focus of this particular ministry. To strengthen body life together. Going, Going deeper in God's word and then going deeper in our relationships with each other. And then finally, finally, our desire for this particular ministry is that every single member of Second Baptist Church would be regularly and actively involved in a small group. Your elders believe that it is for your spiritual growth and for the health of this body that you would participate in a small group. And I recognize that there are some of you here this morning that you may be apprehensive to that. You may refuse that. 
And I would encourage you to consider why that is. Why would you be opposed to doing and being everything that we see here we are called to be in one another's lives? But let me suggest to you that if that's all we're aiming for here, if we're, gonna, if we're just going to try to say, okay, let's, let's just get together in homes and let's, let's just talk about the Bible and care for each other and pray together and share meals. Let's just meet together regularly in a small group. Let me, if that's all that we're trying to do here, let me say that that's not enough. Let me say that that, that will fizzle out. Let me say that that is not going to drive us to this kind of biblical community. So what will? Let me answer this last question. Question number three. What is God's ultimate purpose for this spirit-filled community? And answer that question, I just want to close by reading two passages of Scripture. I want you to turn there with me. Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 14. John chapter 14, Jesus is praying for the church and their fellowship. He's praying for you, Christian. He's praying for our church. Because notice in verse 20, John chapter 17, we read this, these words. I do not ask for these only, meaning the twelve, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So notice here, in other words, Jesus is praying that that in our fellowship together, in the local church, we would in some glorious, majestic, beautiful way experience the same fellowship experience between the Father and the Son. That we get to participate in the divine nature of the triune God in our life together within the local church. God's purpose for this community is that in our fellowship with one another, we would experience deeper, more intimate fellowship with the Father and the Spirit and the Son. Wow. That's incredible. That's the ultimate purpose of the church. But there's one other I want to show you. Ephesians chapter 3. Turn there. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul also speaks about God's ultimate purpose for the church. In verse 7, Ephesians chapter 3, he writes these words. He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold, meaning the multifaceted wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, God's eternal purpose for the church, for this spirit-filled community, is to listen, put on display to the principalities and the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, the unsearchable wisdom of God in Christ by our corporate life together within the church. Will that drive you? Beloved, will that drive you to pursue this kind of biblical community? Let's pray together. Lord, as we think about the ultimate purpose of the church, Lord, 
We think about all that you have created and designed us to be. That you by your infinite grace and mercy have called us through the preaching of the gospel to be part of this new community that you are building. And yet, Lord, we recognize the responsibility that has been given us as your people now in this world. And so, Lord, I pray for a fresh understanding and vision this morning of what it means to be the church, what it means to be this new community. Lord, I pray that this, this passage and these, these characteristics that we've seen here this morning, they would be a description of what it is you have called us to be within this local body. That you would help us to better live in light of these things. That you would help us to more uh, fully put into practice the things that we see here. That we would long for these things in the life of our church. So that we could be everything that you have called us and created us to be. So would you help us by your spirit this morning. We recognize that it is only by the spirit that any of this will happen. And so help us this morning. Would you strengthen us for this task? And we will give you all the glory that our church would be a a visible picture to this community of the transforming power of the gospel. Would you do that in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.